morning, friends. As I was uh, watching the seniors up here earlier, uh, thought came to my mind about how much concerned my mind when I was that age about college choices, about careers, about um, friends, about family, different things. And then uh, you get into college and, and begin living your life as an independent individual out from underneath your parents' oversight. And um, you begin to start thinking about different things besides what I just mentioned. Pretty soon you start thinking about spouse and children and career and all the things necessary to be an adult. And then once you start having children, you've, you've, you've chosen your spouse, you thought that that marriage would resolve some of your concerns and lo and behold, you wake up after the honeymoon and there's still concerns that you have to deal with. And then you're thinking about your children and, and concerned about whether or not they have 10 fingers. And so after they're born, you count those fingers and the doctor comes in and looks like a healthy little boy or little girl or whatever. Or not whatever, little boy or little girl. Um, but <clears throat> that's, that's where we draw the line at the whatever. Uh, but we have these ongoing concerns, right? And you think, if I can just get them through those toddler years, then they'd be fine. And, and you get them, you know, and you get them at school. And if I can just get them to graduation, and then you, more concerns come up about their careers, their choices for college, and their choices for spouse, and then they start having kids, and pretty soon, you know, my point is, is that the concerns that we have as, as people never seem to end. There's always a threshold, we think, that once we cross that threshold, our concerns will, you know, minimize, will we'll reduce a bit, and we'll be able to have a little less stressful experience. Well, uh, I'm in my mid-60s, and that hasn't happened yet for me. And I have some friends and acquaintances uh, that are older than me, and they tell me the same continues with them. And so we always have these, these things that, that face us that we must deal with. Um, we, we can't seem to know the future. And so we fret and worry about the things we don't know, like how are we going to make ends meet, how we're going to secure our retirement, how are we going to pay for our, college our children's college education. We think about our lives, we think about the lives of those we love, we think about our culture, our society, and, and get even more concerned. Well, the Bible speaks to these things, our concerns, that is, and our, our current, our current sermon series in the Gospel of Mark is an attempt to address some of these questions that I've been asking you this morning. Uh, we're looking at a theology of the cross in Mark chapter 14, 15, and 16. In other words, uh, what can we learn about God as we focus on the sufferings of Jesus Christ on Calvary? Mark 14 through 16 is a record of Jesus's Passion Week. And so we have before us an opportunity to learn something about God in these chapters. Now, I've tried to get you to consider in this series on the theology of the cross what, to, what we can learn about God 
and how it impacts our lives from Mark 14, 15, and 16. What I desire is you to hear meaningful theology that you will apply to your specific circumstances. Unapplied theology is bad theology. And so we want to practice good theology at Sun Valley Church and see what we can do to apply it. As you know, um, and as is our practice, these, this sermon series, The Theology of the Cross, have not been expositional sermons, the things that we're comfortable with, because we just go to the scriptures and we, we take a few verses and say, this is what it means, uh, and this is how you apply it. That's not what these are. Um, this is our second pass through Mark 14 through 16. And so these, these particular sermons are, as you know, leaning towards topical sermons, although based on select text, um, but beginning in Mark. So we're gonna be jumping into Mark 14 again today. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there with me, Mark 14, and see what the Holy Spirit has for you. My desire for you today and my prayer is that the theology we unpack will have an important, direct, and immediate impact on how you live the rest of today. And of course, moving forward into the rest of your life. The, the lessons that I wanna bring out of the text today I think are really important. I, I, I want you to see how the foreknowledge of God, that, that omniscience of God, and his meticulous sovereignty not only plan the events of Jesus' final sufferings, but that same foreknowledge and omniscience and meticulous sovereignty is a, is a great source of comfort and encouragement for everybody that will embrace them. So looking at Mark chapter 14, let's, let's begin our, our foray into the theology of the cross as it relates to Jesus' foreknowledge, omniscience, and meticulous sovereignty over the events laid in front of us. So let's look at this right now. Jesus' foreknowledge and omniscience displayed. I'm going to go through Mark chapter 14 and pick out specific verses that reveal to us, that display for us the, the foreknowledge of Jesus Christ, his, his omniscience, his, his knowledge of all things. Okay? By starting in verse 8. In verse 8, we see the following. She, as Jesus is speaking, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So there I want you to see that Jesus knew that he was going to die soon and that, that this woman was there really preparing his body for burial. So he knew at least that, that he was going to be dying soon. Next, I want you to look at verses 13 through 15. And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. Now, I don't know about you, but this would convince me uh, of something extraordinary about Jesus. 
put yourself in the shoes of one of these disciples of his. And Jesus comes up to you and says, hey, go into the city and you'll come across a guy carrying a jug. Follow him into the first house he stops at and talk to the person who owns the house and say, hey, uh, is my room ready? That is meticulous sovereignty. That is foreknowledge. That's omniscience right there displayed for us. The next I want you to see in verses 18 through 21. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is, the one, of the, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. That's foreknowledge, right? That's omniscience. Jesus knew all things that were about to happen to him, and he told them who would be in fact, betraying him. And then look at verses 27 through 30. Again, I'm just displaying for you from Mark 14 evidence of the foreknowledge and omniscience of Jesus. Verses 27 through 30. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, that is his disciples, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That's foreknowledge. That's omniscience. This is something that Jesus saw. And then in verse 62, he said to the, to the Sanhedrin, the ones who were uh, performing a mock trial on him. Jesus said, I am, after being asked, are you the son of the blessed? Are you the Christ? And he said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. All these things are illustrations or displays of the foreknowledge of Jesus Christ, of, of his omniscience, his knowledge of what was yet to happen. The context here of the cross of Christ, this, this passion week of Jesus, allows us to get a glimpse into this omniscience and meticulous sovereignty of Jesus, and then, as a result, help us understand our own lives and circumstances and how that same omniscience, that same sovereign or meticulous sovereignty, helps us through day to day. So, to be sure that you're all with me here, Omniscience simply means complete knowledge. Omniscience means complete knowledge. Meticulous sovereignty means creating and controlling the smallest of details. Creating and controlling the smallest of details. Meticulous sovereignty. Like which way the wind will blow. Like which way the bird will fly. Like when the first drop of rain will hit the ground next week. That's meticulous sovereignty. Even though in his human nature, Jesus, of course, was not omniscient, was not sovereign. In his divine nature, he was. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus had two natures. He was God and man, divine nature, human nature. His human nature had limitations, like when he was surprised at the faith of the centurion. His divine nature did not have limitations. That's what is in focus in our chapter today. 
and in our sermon. The foreknowledge of Jesus Christ, the, the, the omniscience of Jesus Christ, the meticulous sovereignty of him controlling and creating all things leading up to his own death. So what can we learn about God as we look more closely at these demonstrations of foreknowledge, omniscience, and meticulous sovereignty? What can we learn about God that's practical? It's, it's one thing to have a, a, a stock of knowledge in your brain about God and so you can win Bible trivia games when you're a small group. It's another thing to apply these things to your daily life. And that's what I'm after this morning. I want to show you how Jesus' displays of foreknowledge and meticulous sovereignty are related to a theology of the cross in front of us and how those things can bring you who may be going through some difficult things right now, great comfort. Let's begin here after point two, after point one, rather, looking at point two. Jesus' foreknowledge and omniscience unfolded. Jesus' foreknowledge and omniscience unfolded. In John chapter 18, it says this. Then Jesus, now mark this, knowing all that would happen to him, not some, not parts, all. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? How in the world could that be? He knew all that would happen to him. All. How did Jesus know this? Where did he get this foreknowledge? I want to begin to explain this to you by taking you to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And by the way, when you get into a topical sermon, as this primarily is, uh, you have a lot of verses thrown at you because it's a topical sermon. We're, we're talking about the omniscience and, and sovereign meticulous uh, sovereignty of, of God, of Jesus in this case. And so I'm going to bring up verses that support my contention. All right? Because I really don't want you leaving here, Pastor John said. I want you leaving here say God's word said. Right? So here from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11... In him, who's him? Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, the purpose of Jesus Christ, who works all things, all things, not some things, all things, meticulous sovereignty. You might want to make a note in your Bible there. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He controls all things by his will. So, God has a specific purpose he is accomplishing, which includes our salvation. Paul said in this verse, Ephesians 1.11, that God predetermines our salvation according to his eternal will. And you know what eternal is, right? It goes that way as far as you can see, and that way as far as you can see. Actually, farther than both of those. Further than you can see. That is what eternal is. So God predetermines our salvation according to his eternal will. And that our salvation takes place only in Jesus Christ. So Jesus got his foreknowledge about what would happen to him, about the guy carrying the jar, about who would betray him because he's God. <laughs> That's where it came from. And God's purpose, which, is, which have been in place since before time began, 
include how he's going to save you and me. This is a theology of the cross. Listen to how Paul explains this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.19. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Here's where you mark again in your Bibles. Which he gave us, he gave us his purpose and grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before one person breathed one breath, God had ordained, planned, and scheduled meticulously all the events that lead to this moment on Calvary. Think of all the details that had to have happened just for that one guy, for Jesus to identify that one guy who was carrying a jar. It's almost infinite, the amount of detail that had to be in place in order for those guys to cross paths when they did, who would walk to the owner of the house who had planned for Jesus to show up when he would with the men he would to be able to serve them like he did. So what does Jesus' foreknowledge, his omniscience and meticulous sovereignty tell us about him as we look at the cross? Well, the cross and all the, the stunning, horrific detail was planned meticulously so that you and I could be saved, so that you and I could have our sins forgiven. We see that the plan was in place and unfolding as early as the Garden of Eden, don't we? Yeah. All of this, follow me, in the Garden of Eden, what's the Garden of Eden famous for? The fall, right? The sin, the, the eating of the, the forbidden fruit. That's what, was, that's what Garden of Eden was famous for. It was, a, it was a wonderful place. It was a place God prepared and, and gave to Adam and Eve to, to live a perfect, peaceful life with him in fellowship with him. And yet they rejected, rebelled against that and partook of the forbidden fruit. They had plenty of other fruit. They weren't hungry. They, they, they bought into the temptation, the sin, and as a result, they fell. Now, you think, okay, so what? Well, think about the meticulous sovereignty of God in the matter. God planned that so that he could save you and me. Otherwise, Adam and Eve would have been practically robots and we would be the same. So sin entered the human race by God's design so that he could send a savior and forgive our sins by his grace and draw you through his redemption into the family of God. Which gives us a picture of Christ that would be unavailable if we had never sinned as a human race. So we see that plan starting as soon as humans were on the planet. We see at least the experience of it. It started like I've just described for you in eternity past. But as it relates to the plan of God, listen to what Isaiah the prophet says. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. What does this say? If God's planned it, it will happen. That's about as clear as it gets, isn't it? Is there going to be an argument there? If God's planned it, it happens. 
As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purpose, so shall it stand. God's plans and purposes happen because he's God. And we see this unfolded in the New Testament as it concerns Jesus' foreknowledge. The foreknowledge and meticulous sovereignty of God in our salvation is explained in the New Testament. I'll get here in a second. It's pictured in the Old Testament, but it's explained in the New Testament. That is, the foreknowledge and meticulous sovereignty of God. How so? Let me start with this, John 12, 27. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. <laughs> Jesus came into the world for the specific purpose of dying for his people. That's why he came. And then Paul Again, explaining meticulous sovereignty and omniscience to his disciple Timothy says this in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. This is why Jesus came. So Jesus knew why he was born into the human race and Paul knew why Jesus came into the human race. To accomplish his plan that was set out before time began. The New Testament reveals that the reason Jesus had perfect foreknowledge and planned the details of his salvific work was because he is God and plans everything for our salvation and whatever he plans, he accomplishes. All right? Galatians 4 explains this somewhat. Verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, you know you could stop there and preach a sermon on that when the fullness of time had come. If Jesus had come at any other time in human history, his work would not have accomplished the purpose for which he had planned. He had to die on a Roman cross. There was a small sliver of time in human history when criminals were killed, executed on Roman crosses. In the fullness of time, at the perfect moment, Jesus showed up. And there's other elements that I could go into, but I won't. Like I said, you could preach a sermon on it, but I'm preaching on something else right now. So let's go with this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son from heaven to earth, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those under the law so that we might become sons of God. We might be adopted as sons. So all this planning that took place in eternity past came to fruition when God arrived on the planet in Jesus Christ and fulfilled the purpose for which he came, which was to die for you and me. Acts 2.23. By the way, this particular verse uh, about 30 years ago is what got me thinking down this path. Charles Spurgeon was asked once, how long did it take him to prepare a sermon? And he said this, a lifetime. This, God has started me down this road of understanding his meticulous sovereignty as it relates to his plan of salvation at least 30 years ago in my life, maybe 40. Because of this verse, listen to this verse. And by the way, John Piper in the book, The Kids Just Got, Desiring God, explains this in detail. Uh, this Jesus, this was Peter speaking. I'm sorry to give so many introductions here, but... Uh, this was Peter speaking. He was preaching to uh, the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. 
This Jesus, Mark, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. <laughs> Who planned the death of Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Those Jews, man, if I was there, that wouldn't have happened. Oh, really? It was designed in eternity past to happen by the hand of God. There was a book written called God Killed Jesus, and it's true. God was responsible for the death of his son because in eternity past, he planned that it would happen. He just used sinful men to accomplish it. It's, un it's explained, it's unfolded. The, the, the meticulous sovereignty of God, the, the omniscience of Jesus is unfolded in the New Testament so we can see that he is behind all things. It's also unfolded in the Old Testament. New Testament, it's explained Old Testament, it's pictured. Look at some of these pictures in the Old Testament. God's plan of salvation was put into pictures in what they call types. Here are some of these clear pictures and types, illustrations of the plan of God being revealed in the Old Testament. And, and by the way, it's, the Old Testament is full of these things. It's a glorious study. As you read through your, your uh, daily Bible reading plan, perk up when you're reading the Old Testament as it relates to these things. Abraham took his only son Isaac to Mount Moriah to offer him in sacrifice in obedience to the command of God, didn't he? Isn't that what the plan was? Yeah, of course, he never actually sacrificed his son because God provided a what? Substitution, a ram, instead of his son. There's where we get the idea in the Old Testament, in the first book of the Bible, of substitutionary atonement. It was actually before that, but it was in, in Genesis. Remember, God provided um, animal skins as clothing for Adam and Eve. That was by way of substitutionary atonement also. But in Genesis 22, it's just blatant in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Instead of Isaac... A ram was found in the thicket. And so Isaac was spared. The ram's blood was spilt instead of Isaac's to pay for the sins of both. Now, you're saying, well, that's a nice story, but how does it picture the meticulous sovereignty of God? Where did Moses get the information here to write this? From God, right? This is all coming from the mind of God to explain the future salvation found in Jesus Christ to those currently reading the book of Genesis. So, Isaac, and there's, by the way, there's a lot of connections here. Let me give you a couple. What mountain did Abraham take Isaac to? Mount Moriah. And what is Mount Moriah? It's this place called Calvary. He was, Abraham had to travel three days north to get to Mount Moriah. There was plenty of places down there in Beersheba where Abraham was living he could have sacrificed his son, like in his backyard. But God told Abraham to take him north three days to a mountain called Moriah, the mountain on which the temple would be built, the mountain on which Calvary stood, the mountain on which Jesus died. What pictures are flashing in front of your mind right now of the amazing, meticulous sovereignty of God. 
in our salvation. And it goes on. But let me give you some other pictures. The sacrificial system under Moses. This was not Moses' brainchild. He received it from God, didn't he? The, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system as blueprinted by God, given to Moses to give to Aaron to begin Judaism, the sacrifice of animals to pay for the sins of his people, the, the, the temple worship, the priestly requirements, the, the priestly duties. All these things are pictures, types, pointers to the work of Jesus Christ. This is what the book of Hebrews explains in detail. The priests in the Old Testament sacrificial system were simply um, doing the work temporarily that Jesus would accomplish permanently. Like, you remember this, when someone like you, if you and me were Old Testament saints, we would sin and we would bring a sacrificial animal to the priests. Do you remember what the priests would have us do? We had to place our hands on the head of that animal to, to uh, symbolize the passing of our guilt to the animal at which time the animal was killed. Their innocent blood was spilt instead of ours. We were the guilty ones, but our guilt passed to the animals and the priest representing Christ executed that animal. The innocent blood was spilt, taken into the sanctuary and spread on the altar. This is a picture showing you that God had a plan throughout eternity to show us the coming Savior, our Savior, who would spill his blood on Calvary for our sins and our salvation. And the system was full of pictures like this, like the bronze altar was a picture of, that, that altar was a picture of the cross. Where the innocent animals died was the altar, where Jesus died was the altar of the cross and so forth. And then we come across other stories that entertained us in Sunday school when we were kids, like Jonah. You know, what an exciting story that was. Uh, getting swallowed by this big fish and surviving for three days and what a story. And you know, who knows what your Sunday school teacher told you about that. But it wasn't about Jonah and three days in the fish. It was meant to give us a picture of Christ Jesus. How long did Jesus spend in the tomb? This isn't a trick question. Three days, right? He spent three days. The same amount of time that Jonah spent in the fish. And so this, this is another picture of the work of Christ on our behalf. Jonah spent three days in the fish. Jesus spent three days in the grave. Both came out of this place of death alive and well to carry on with the will of God. And there's other things like the bronze serpent in the wilderness that was placed upon a pole. You remember why that was happening, right? The, God, because of the rebellion of the people, sent what is described as fiery serpents. There were, there were snakes that were poisonous that were biting the people of Israel and killing them. And this became an epidemic, and Moses pled with God for an answer, and guess what God said? Get a serpent that looks like that fiery animal that's killing you, and make it out of bronze and place it on a pole. And if, if anybody, anybody in Israel will go and look at that pole in faith 
and believe that if they simply obey the word of God, they will be saved from the snake bites, even after they've been bitten. So we come along, actually we don't, but Jesus was speak, explaining this to Nicodemus, and he says, that's just like the world today. We are bitten by sin, but the Son of Man will be lifted up onto a pole, and if you look to him in faith, you will be forgiven of those sins. You will live and not die. So the Son of Man had to be lifted up, and it was pictured in the Old Testament with a bronze serpent. Noah's Ark. How many doors were on Noah's Ark? One. How many ways of salvation is there? One. Jesus said, I am the door. <laughs> right? And so we have all these amazing pictures that were, that were um, ordained by God in his omniscience, in his meticulous sovereignty, to picture by way of type the work of Christ on Calvary for our salvation. Sprinkled all over the Old Testament. All these pictures point to the fulfillment of God's meticulous plan. All this helps us see that God is in complete control of all things concerning our salvation, all things not concerning our salvation, all things, and he is trustworthy. What I have planned, I will accomplish. He is in control over the big picture, which requires that he controls the details. So, as we walk through our life today, we can lean into his promises. We can trust his character. We can live for his glory, even when it gets difficult, even when we don't understand, especially when we don't understand, because he is faithful, and what he has planned and promised, he will accomplish. This is also unfolded in eternity past. It was unfolded in the Old Testament, New Testament, but it's also unfolded before the Old Testament in eternity past. You say, how are we gonna to get to that information? Well, it's in the Bible. And this is what we lean on. Listen to this verse from Titus, chapter one, verse two. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. What did he promise? Eternal life. Who did he promise? We weren't there. No human was there. Who was he promising? Himself. This is the covenant of redemption. This is God's promise to himself that he would accomplish all things necessary to save sinners. Before the ages began, eternity passed, he did this. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. Peter describes this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's where you mark your Bible. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. For the sake of your salvation, it was predetermined in eternity past that Jesus would be the lamb, the spotless lamb who would die for your sin. That's stunning to me. Before one person was born, that proves he knew all about and he planned all things, including the sin of mankind and the work of, necessary work of Christ to pay for that sin. All planned before one human ever breathed one breath. 
Now, that's all head knowledge, that's all heartwarming, but we need to apply it. This is really good information, good theology, let's apply it to make it actual good theology. Jesus' foreknowledge and omniscience applied. Let's apply this right now. First of all, let's apply it to my salvation, your salvation. Jesus said this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. What a wonderful invitation that is. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. That's everybody, right? Who isn't burdened by life? Maybe people in their teens and less, but the rest of humanity is burdened by life. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He offers rest, which is a synonym for salvation, to anyone who comes to him. But here's the problem. The Bible says that no one comes. A little bit of a dilemma here we have. Jesus offers salvation, but you can't have it. Right? You can't get to it. Listen, Paul explains why we can't get to it. Romans 8 Verses 7 and 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that's how we're born, by the way, with a fleshly mind. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't choose God in your natural self. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul calls us, enemies of God, resistant to anything, rejection of all things God. And then, in Paul, then Paul says in Romans 3 that no one seeks God, no one is righteous. So how are we going to do this? Jesus is offering salvation to anybody who will come, but you can't come. That sounds like an unfair offer. How do we end up coming to faith? How do we end up getting our sins forgiven? Somehow, God's Spirit influences the will of all those who God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit Himself had planned to save in eternity past. Follow along. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as He, that is God, chose us in Him, in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So before anybody took a breath, before time began, God chose those of us who would respond to the offer of salvation. Those who would respond to Jesus' offer of coming to his rest. So what I want you to do now with me is to turn to one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, and that is Ephesians chapter 2. It's not on the overhead, so you'll need to be with me in Ephesians chapter 2 to see the power of how this works. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 describes our inability to respond to the gospel message, our inability to respond to Jesus' offer of rest and salvation. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now is in work in the sons of disobedience, we were dead in our sins. We, when we were, we were born in this condition, unable to respond to the gospel in and of ourselves. But now look at verse four, Ephesians chapter two. 
something changed, something's different. But God, listen to all these qualifiers, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Look what he did. He made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved in the same way that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead by divine act of grace, he did the same for you if you're a Christian in this room this morning. He says, you, just like he said to Lazarus, come forth. And we do. Why? Because God said it. If he plans it, it happens. If you were on the list before eternity, in eternity past, when he says, come, guess what you do? You come. <laughs> because what God has planned, he accomplishes. He who began a good work in you does what? Completes it. And when did the plan begin? He who planned, who, who, he who began the good work, when did it begin? Eternity passed. Some people might ask you, hey, when were you saved? You could say, well, I think it was my freshman year in college. And I got, well, that's when, it, that's when you said the words. That's when you acknowledged your need. When were you saved again? Let me ask you again. When were you saved? In eternity past. <laughs> That's good news for lousy sinners <laughs> like us. Anyway, I hope you're catching where I'm going with this. It's, it's amazing, profound doctrine and theology. So the application of Jesus' foreknowledge and omniscience and meticulous sovereignty is applied to my salvation. That's why if you're in Christ and saved this morning, it's because of these things. It's because he's omniscient and he has meticulous sovereignty over all things, including your will. Now let's look at how it applies to our sanctification. Like I've just mentioned, Paul said in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it. That's a process that each of us are part of, that each of us are entered into by the Holy Spirit when he regenerates our hearts. When he regenerates our hearts, he puts us on a path in our experience of time that begins to transform us from what we were, our selfish selves, into what we will be one day, and that is to be like Jesus. That's sanctification. God is more, it seems, and it's not just it seems, here's the reality, God is more committed to our sanctification than we are. God is more committed to our sanctification than our spouses are to our sanctification. Did you hear me? You really want a sanctified spouse, don't you? Yeah. You want sanctified kids, don't you? God's more committed to their sanctification than you are. And some of us say, man, thank God for that. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 29 concerning God's commitment to your sanctification. For those he foreknew, right? Foreknowledge, omniscience, meticulous sovereignty, getting to this point of decision. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
God is completely committed to your transformation. Not only is he committed to forgiving your sins, he is committing to the, the process and the completion of that process of your total transformation into the image of Christ. So if you're sitting in this room this morning in Christ, if you know Jesus, if you've embraced him, if you've embraced his gospel, there is no getting out of becoming like Jesus. You will one day be like Jesus. And let me tell you something. Most of us, if not all of us, in fact, I've never met anybody that has avoided this, uh, die completely sanctified. And then a miracle of grace happens on the other side of death. What is it? We see Jesus. And what's Paul say about that? We see in the twinkling of an eye we'll be like him, right? When we see him face to face. So all the unfinished business of our earthly sanctification is resolved in a moment in that beatific vision when you see Jesus and look him in the eye. Boom. You are like him. I'm looking forward to that day. I hope you are. What a glorious day that will be. And now let's, let's complete this sermon and apply this theology to my daily life. This is applied to my salvation, this sovereignty of God, this foreknowledge of God, this, this omniscience of God. It's, it's applied to my sanctification, becoming like Jesus. Now I want to, to get down to where the rubber meets the road for us daily. How is it that you're going to be thinking differently about your life and yourself walking out that door after hearing this? Psalm 41.10. Psalm Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He who planned it will complete it. If he planned it, it's as good as done. Fear not. Why? Because I am with you. Don't be dismayed. Why? Because I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's something you can walk out the door with. He says in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus walks with us by his spirit to be a source of hope, joy, encouragement, peace, strength. We can depend on him. He's trustworthy. He's proven it. He's pictured it. He's accomplished it. He loves us. He's perfectly wise. Whatever we may face in life, we can be assured that he is for us because if he's planned it, he will complete it. So instead of trusting ourselves, instead of doing all we can to depend on our own strength and wisdom, worrying about things, why not just run to Jesus, throw ourselves completely on him, on his sovereign goodness, on his omniscience, on his meticulous sovereignty, and rest? John Owen said this, we can have no power from Christ unless we live in the persuasion that we have none of our own. And then I'm going to, com going to conclude this sermon with a quote from Richard Baxter, who I, I don't think this got onto the overhead, did it? It is? Oh, awesome. 
This is an amazing quote. Let your soul retain the deepest impression of the almightiness, wisdom, goodness, and faithfulness of God and how certainly all persons, things, and events are in his power and how impotent all the world is to resist him and that nothing can hurt you but by his consent. The principal means for a confirmed confidence in God is to know him and to know that all things that we can fear are nothing and can do nothing but by his command and motion or permission. What are you afraid of? <laughs> that God won't treat you right? I am not afraid of a bird or a worm because I know it is too weak for me. And if I rightly apprehend how much all creatures are too weak for God and how sufficient God is to deliver me, his trust would quiet me. Isn't that good? Isn't that how we need to think? Yeah. What a wonderful theology is seen in this, in this chapter of Mark that we read through in a heartbeat and don't even think twice about. He is meticulously sovereign over every detail of your life and mine. He's omniscient, knows all things. Nothing surprises him. All things are planned and will be accomplished. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that we faint sometime in the face of the unknown, in the face of concerning circumstances. We retreat to our fears and worries. We, we want to run the opposite direction. We want to run to you who have offered us genuine rest, peace, safety, and comfort. Even in the dark times, even in the painful, difficult times, with you is the only place of comfort and peace that we know exists. And so, Lord, we, we turn from our um, selfish plans, our attempts to bring our own peace and comfort to our circumstances and, and turn to you, the only one who controls these things. We raise up our voices in praise and adoration for these wonderful truths. Bless us now as we think on them and your spirit reminds us of them throughout the day. Amen.